Today, we get the opportunity to start our Advent series. And as a kid growing up, I was at church all the time, but we never, I don't remember a time necessarily that we did an Advent series. And so maybe you're like me. And to simply put it, Advent is kind of preparing our hearts for what Christmas is. Advent is preparing our hearts for the celebration that Jesus Christ comes to earth. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to prepare our hearts. And this morning, I get the job of talking about humility's worst enemy, pride. And so this will be a real fun one to do together. But pray for me in that. But uh, we're going to talk about the humility of Christ. And we, we read together Philippians 2, where you see God coming to earth as a man. And we live really busy lives, and I wonder when the last time you really paused to reflect on the fact that God sends his son to the earth as a baby. Uh, I mean, that blows my mind. That And what's worse about the whole ordeal is that God is making a way to deal with his wrath because we are not holy like he is. And so God is sending his son in our place. If you're a part of the church, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, that sin that you held on to for so long in your life, it didn't just vanish. It was paid for. It was put on the back of Jesus Christ and dealt with. Okay, that's it didn't just vanish. It was paid for in Jesus Christ. And so it's a hopeful thing when we consider what Jesus Christ has done and really worth a lot of our time, a lot of our time. And it's so distracting around Christmas. Honestly, I struggle most personally with Christmas. It's so busy. And my family has kind of set a few parameters to try to wrestle with all the chaos that goes on. But no matter how we try to simplify it or stay focused, you're just hit from side to side. And so just as a church, just as we start this Advent series, let's really wrestle with keeping Christ at the center of this. Or maybe you should ask yourself, what does it look like in our life to keep Christ at the center? You know your schedule. You know your plan. You, you, you got to navigate that. And it doesn't come without a plan. And so really take time to focus in on who Jesus Christ is. And so today, again, we're going to talk about pride. Normally we do book studies. We go verse by verse is how we like to go. That way we can't avoid any difficult verses. But to, for the next few weeks, we're going to study topically through the scripture and really wrestle with what humility is. But as I said, today we talk about pride. And I remember a couple years before I moved to Iowa in 2016, so probably about 2012, 2013, um, I was working at a church in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And my mom was working for my sister-in-law at a little store that she had. And the weather was horrendous outside. I think it was probably February. And in Grand Forks, North Dakota, you always have about four to six weeks of 20 below. Like that is the high, okay? And so it was blizzarding outside, which meant it was awful, okay? And my mom calls me up and she's like, hey, can I ride with you home? I do not want to drive on these roads. The visibility was bad and uh, it was windy. And so it was negative 25 out was the real temperature. And with the wind, it was negative 65, 
And so we were going to drive home together. It seemed like a good plan. And so we get south of Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I'm behind this Chevy pickup. And I'm like, why is this guy going so slow? Are you kidding me? It's 65 below out here. We need to get home. Like, I can see, why is he going so slow? And so my heart was prideful. I started to get angry at this person for his incompetence as a driver. And so at probably the brightest time on a curve, I thought, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to pass this guy. I will get home faster. And as I pulled out to pass this guy in his white Chevy pickup, I realized, I know why I can see now. Because he couldn't see. And so I drove around in all my pride. I was super angry. And again, we're probably doing 20. I sped up to 23 to make it by him. I quickly lost all orientation. I didn't know what was left and right. And I drove around him and I literally drove straight into the ditch. And I was like, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. This is one of the times that really changed even how I drove as a punk male. Uh, yeah. Um, because my mom is in the car. My mom, I don't know, she was 65 years old. And I'm like, what am I doing? And we literally drove straight into the ditch. And then guess what? That guy stopped. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. Uh, and he came down to the car. And he, he, he shared some of his thoughts with me, which were dead on. Um, he, he was angry. And uh, I remember just being like, man, you're right. I, I shouldn't have done that. And then he's like, well, do you guys need a ride? And I'm like, oof, this is getting better and better. And so what would have been about a 20, 25-ish minute journey was probably about just under two, three hours, two and a half hours, I think it took us to drive to Crookston. And then I met my dad and my brother. And my dad had some words for me as well. Uh, and then we, we rode home. But pride reared itself up, you know. I think when we ask ourselves, like, do I struggle with pride, I think We'd all kind of say, I mean, if you're generous, like, I mean, kind of, yeah, sure. But pride has a way of permeating so many other issues in her life. And that day for Matthew Morkin, pride was exuding from me. And that day, pride could have led to my death and the death of my mom. And they had suspended all travel in that part of North Dakota. They were not going to happily come out and get you had we had to dial 911. At that rate, in that place, with the wind and the snow that had accumulated, there was a decent chance your cell phone wasn't going to work. And so that realization struck me that pride is really a dangerous thing. And so some of you are like, well, sure, pride goes before a fall. Of course it's a dangerous thing. And, and you're not wrong, right? If you go to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's interesting how we like to kind of dwell on the pride part, but we don't like to talk about a haughty spirit. That spirit that says, I can just do this. These fools, why are they doing it like that? I can do it better. I can do it more efficiently. This is the fool, most foolish thing I've been a part of. But that haughty spirit shows up as well. And it's easy when it shows up. And if you're like me, the greater concern isn't that you exude it. Because a lot of you are religious people. You've been around a church before. But how is pride in your heart? How is it in your mind? 
The times where you don't vocalize how foolish the people around you are. Or how incompetent they are. Are you proud? And so, church, I want to challenge us. If you're visiting today, I, I want to say to you, come back again. I hope you do. But it's really a challenge for us as the church to say, like, where is pride in us? Okay, so I created a test for us as the church to ask ourselves. And I, I know, again, we kind of go back to the kid in third grade who let you know every time, like, I got something new. And my dad is better than yours. And I got a new bike. And I got a new shirt. And I got a new gaming system, right? You all think right away to that person. And again, I'm not worried so much in this room about us being that vocal about, hey, I got a new pickup. My pickup's better than your pickup. I mean, I know that goes on a little bit, right? And we go do that with sports teams, like my sports team's better than your sports team. But how deep does that go into our heart? Is that truly a symptom? So here's some things to consider as you ask yourself about pride in your own life. Have you ever been impatient? Frustrated with a spouse or child because you had things to do. I've got stuff to do. We've got to get going. I've got to get there. Have you ever been angry when things didn't go according to your plan? Maybe you just want people to notice who you are. Have you ever demanded attention or sought attention more subtly for the sake of letting you people know, like, hey, I'm here. I'm here. And that subtlety thing, that's, that's another part that concerns me for us. Have you ever manipulated the situation to make sure your spouse or somebody you work with pays for not noticing you? Or giving you honor or respect? Folks, are you, are you bitter? Are you, are you resentful? A different page. Do you have trouble submitting to authority? Do you have trouble submitting to authority at home? And students, I'm not going to ignore the fact that you're in this room either, right? So there is an authority at home. God has provided us with a structure. No matter how you're aged, no matter who you are, God has made a structure for you. Like, do you submit when you're at home? Do you submit to authority at school? At your job? At your church? Do you have trouble submitting to authority? Do you look down on people from other communities? This is huge, okay? Because we're a church that is made up of a, many communities. I think there are 10 communities that have pretty regularly been represented here. And it's hard for us. I grew up in Climax, Minnesota. I've kind of shared this story with you all before. But we hated everybody from Nielsville. They were all on drugs, right? And everybody from Fisher, they were just too high for us. Like, ooh, you're from Fisher. We should bow down. Let me get my coat on the floor for you to walk. That's pride. And again, the tension is kind of the sarcasm joke thing. Like, it isn't that bad. But, but where does it lead in your heart? Is it actually funny? You look down on people from other churches... Now, there are some churches that I would challenge theologically. I don't agree with them theologically. But are they image bearers? Could God work in their life? Do I look down at people from other teams? 
Let me ask this. Is there a place that you would never go? Ever? Because of those people? Or because because of that culture? Even if God called you, is there a place that you would never go? Are you a servant of all? Unless you are called to serve that person. Let's be more painful. You take responsibility for things. Even when the outcome isn't good. I love to take responsibility for things when it's awesome. It's easy. Hey, we succeeded. Look at this. But do we pass it off? When things don't go well, well, they said that we needed to do such and such. Or he said this. Huh, I don't know. When you're part of a team, or however it plays out, and more directed at your heart, like, do you ever confess sin? I mean, really, ever. Okay, I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old, and God saved me when I was 26. And when I look back at those years, I would call myself a religious person. I never actually confessed sin. I, 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 I would if you caught me. Oh, gosh, that was wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, you caught me. But there was never any relationship with God. And speaking of relationship with God, are your prayers a list of demands for him to fulfill? Or are your prayers an opportunity for you to build community with God? Or have communion with him? These are some brutal questions that I want us to ask ourselves. As we go to this place, as we consider Christ coming to earth, like where do we stand when it comes to humility? Where do we stand with following him? And I think for some of us, it's easy to approach a Jesus who's in a manger because he's kind of harmless. He's probably cute. We've got some young babies in this room, and they're very cute. And they're not going to harm me. They're not going to tell me, like, hey, man, there's pride in your heart. No cute baby says that to me. At least that I call cute. But anyways, Jesus, we come to Jesus, and he's kind of harmless. And so today I want to talk about three stories where pride exudes in the people's lives. And I want us to continue to evaluate our heart and say, like, where is my heart When it comes to pride. Webster has its own dictionary. In fact, I forgot to tell you what Webster says of pride. Webster says that pride is reasonable self-esteem or confidence and satisfaction in oneself. This focus on self-esteem. This self-confidence. And I wonder how many of you have heard those terms tied in with this concept of self-help. This continued turn inward. Turn inward. You can do it. You can do it. And what our world is pushing on us over and over again to worship you because you are awesome. And I would tell you a definition of pride is this. Pride puts you on the throne of your life or your universe. And it's boast or worship calls out, look at me. Look at what I have done. Look at the family that we have. Look at the teaching that we do. Look at how we live. Look at me. I'm awesome. I'm awesome. 
And that's a challenge according to scripture. So let's go to these three texts. If you want to, join me in Second Chronicles. I know you're thinking an Advent series. Why are we going to Chronicles? Because Chronicles is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. That we might be equipped. And in Chronicles chapter, Second Chronicles chapter 26, it tells a story about a king named Uzziah. And he takes the throne at 26 years of age. And in verse 5 it says, He set himself to seek Yahweh in the days of Zechariah, who was the prophet at the time. And Zechariah instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So Uzziah was wise. And it goes through, it talks about how Uzziah has built this fascinating army for Israel. And then it talks about the city. And Uzziah, this is verse 14, prepared for all the army shields. That was a pretty big deal. Spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Until Uzziah was strong. Pride is tricky. He was successful until he was strong. And then for Uzziah, this pride literally leads to separation and death. (laughs) It literally leads to separation and death. It says in verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Right? Pride comes before a fall. To his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now Uzziah was a king, but he was not a priest. His pride and power leaked into his religion, much like your pride and power will leak into your religion. And no matter his role, no matter how intelligent, no matter how powerful he was, to light incense was not his task Okay, like realize that in this story, Uzziah, when, the, when his pride bursts forth, he isn't killing anybody. He wants to light incense. Okay, I'm, I'm here to light incense. The Lord has told us to come into the temple and light incense, so I'm going to do this job. Okay, he's not murdering anybody. He's not abusing anybody. He just wants to light the incense in the temple of the holy God. And the priests surround him and are like, what are you doing? This isn't your task. And he grew angry at them. And the Lord strikes him with leprosy. The Lord strikes Uzziah with leprosy. God does not tolerate that kind of behavior. It is not for Uzziah to do. He is out of his league. Pride is tricky. Pride deceives. And it's interesting that pride pops up over time, even after having seen the blessing of the Lord. The Lord had helped him. So I want to jump quickly to the second story. I want to jump to Daniel chapter 4. And I love the story of Daniel chapter 4 because it's about this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was an incredibly smart king. 
Nebuchadnezzar had effectively conquered the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar is credited with the hanging towers of Babel. You can look him up on Wikipedia. You don't need the Bible to find out who Nebuchadnezzar is. He had uh, married a foreign wife. She comes over. She misses her homeland. He's like, I'll just build it here. Okay, so one of the seven wonders of the world, this man is credited with building. And he's done fantastic work, okay? This is, these people aren't foolish. They're not just out grunting at each other. They're very intellectual people. And yet, there's a problem here. And, but I want us to see, too, that Nebuchadnezzar is not just a fictional character. He's a real king. He fought real battles, okay? He really is a very big deal. And if you'd approached Nebuchadnezzar and he wasn't ready for you, he'd kill you. No big deal. Why are you here? You're dead. Gone. And see that power and authority that he had, although it was pagan and led by paganism. And so before the part that we're going to read, it talks about him having a dream. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you've heard about this. But there's this really great tree. And under the tree, all the animals of the earth kind of gather and they find shade and they find food. And all of a sudden this angel, this person comes and chops the tree down and leaves a stump. And he's like, what on earth does that mean? And through a course of events, Daniel is found. He had been hauled off from the land of Judah. And he comes to interpret the dream. And Daniel has a warning for the king. He's like, oh, king. You know, Daniel has to tell him, like, this tree, it's your kingdom. Like, you're shielding the whole earth. And king, you're not worshiping the Lord God. And if you do not cease from sin by practicing righteousness, king, your kingdom is gone from you. Your kingdom is gone from you. So we're going to jump into the story here. We're in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28, okay? All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So about one year later, he's been warned. He's been given 12 months of grace. King, serve the Lord. Stop sinning. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal resident, as a king, for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31, Well, the words were still on the king's mouth. There fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you have been driven away from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Immediately, the word was filled Fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. This king of the world, who had become the king of the world by fighting, by connivory, by smartness, taken. God says, listen, worship me. And I wonder how many of us have built a perfect kingdom with us, our spouse, and our family, and our kids. And we do things this way, and this way is right. And we have a special guest in our kingdom. His name is God. He's a nice guy. He kind of does what we say. I mean, he's kind of a big deal, but we try to, you know, God, you know. But we've really got this thing going for us. We have it down. Schedule. 
Uh, we've got stuff, money set aside for the next economy thing. Like we are set. And God shouldn't meddle with that. But he's a great guest. We love having him around. We talk to him. I wonder if we have a kingdom. I love the story of Nebuchadnezzar, though, because there's hope. There's hope for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's literally a picture of the king of the world stepping off his throne and letting Jesus sit on his throne. We see it here in verse 34. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, they are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I'm going to skip a verse. I'm going to go to verse 37. It says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar worships. Nebuchadnezzar removes himself from the throne. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to willingly go to a field and be an ox. Even some of us would be like, I'm not going to go into a field and be an ox. So then why would a king or a president or a ruler of a nation be like, I'm going to just go be an ox for seven periods of time. It'll be fun. I uh, will meet new animals, right? No, nobody does that. To some of us, to consider like, hey, horse, I'm going to jump in your pen. Save some of those pellets for me. That's weird. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't eat alongside our barn animals. And this is the king of the world. Who exerts himself and things happen. Who declares build and they build. And God says, settle down. Don't be so proud of what you've built. And he's like, is this not the Morkin family which I have built? Woe. Woe to you. Who say, I will go here and do this. I will make these plans and they will succeed. The plans of man are folly. They're foolishness even for the king of the world. Are you going to get past Biblical humility puts God right on the throne and puts him in control and puts us rightly in our place. We are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of your life. For centuries, they thought the sun was the center of the universe. And as telescopes grew and could see further, we realized like, yeah, we're over on the side. Maybe we're in the armpit. Like, I don't know. We're not in the middle anymore, and neither are you. Spiritually, you're not in the center of your universe. Get out. There's a throne, and it's for a king. His name is Jesus. Humility puts God rightly on the throne and, and puts control in his hands. 
and puts us rightly in our place. It's boast or it's worship is he did it. It's him, not me. He did it. It's all him. Again, I think we walk away from the story of Nebuchadnezzar and some of us are like, yeah, I'm not a king. Uh, I haven't conquered anybody. The neighbor and I, we argued over a landline. He won. I guess I can't go strike him with a sword. And you shouldn't. Okay? But, are, but are, do you want to be king? How does control play out in your life? How do you strive to exert it? Does it create anger and anxiety and relational strain? Pride destroys. Pride absolutely destroys. As a gospel shepherd, that's what we call our biblical counseling at Veritas, time and time again, marriages are destroyed. And when we bypass all the symptoms, pride is sitting on the throne. And it says, I'm pretty awesome. Never have I counseled anybody who's come in asking for help and found humility at the root of it. Come here and fix my spouse. Fix my situation. Show me where the Bible verse is that tells them to get in line. Pride destroys. And Nebuchadnezzar was humbled at the time of God. I want to go to one last story if you want to follow me to Philippians. We're going to go to chapter 3. This isn't necessarily a story like the others. Um, This is written by the Apostle Paul. And he's been saved by God. But um, he kind of tells a little bit of his story. It's the story of the religious person, really. Uh, And We're going to start in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. He's preaching to the Jews. And he's just like, guys, like, we can't be clinging to the law anymore. Like, Jesus has come. And so we can't be requiring the people to do this. And this tension of circumcision, it just goes around and around and around throughout the Newer Testament. And he's trying to say, guys, like, let's dial it back here. It's not about the externals. It's about the heart. Okay? So he's talking to those folks. And he says, for we are the circumcision. Sure, we're the Jews who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so I'm not going to put any confidence in the flesh. I'm going to put confidence in the work that Christ has done in me. By the Spirit of God. So he says, though I have, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You see this, where this could be boastful. And this is the tension too. I was raised a religious kid and all my life, all my religiosity, my Christianity was based off of the fact that I was better than you. And if I wasn't better than you, I sure better hide it from you. And this move, this idea of the Pharisees to know the law, to study the scriptures and miss Jesus, that was problematic. It was, it was damning. Absolutely damning for them. Because they would just look, like, look at what I've done. And so what did Paul do? He's like, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, right? I am of the people of Israel, the people of God, the chosen tribe, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was an honored, respected tribe. The first king of Israel comes from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm bought in. 
As to the law, so the Hebrews had a law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not a Sadducee, I'm a Pharisee. They're better than Sadducees. I was more in. As to zeal, how much of a Pharisee were you? I was a persecutor of the church. These people who came and talked about grace and the love of Jesus, I put them down. I destroyed their houses of worship. I didn't even tolerate that. You're against the law, I'll kill you or I'll destroy you. One of the two. That's how zealous I was for the law. I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's a strong statement. I wish Paul, Paul, what did you mean there? Obviously, he's talking from that perspective. But he's saying, like, you want to compare your works? I got some. Let's go. You lay yours on the table, I'll lay mine on the table. I was blameless. I was blameless. I was zealous. I was blameless in the law. Pride is deceitful. Pride is deceitful. And I wonder how many of us are in here hiding under the shell of religion. We're just hiding there. Like, I'm going to tell you what to do, but I don't do it. It's just a disconnect between what I teach and how I live. What I teach and what goes on in my head. What I say to you and what I practice. Pride has a way of deceiving us. And the Pharisees were deceived. To know the proclamations of the gospel that are found in Deuteronomy. The picture of Christ that is found in Exodus. The story of the Evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3. To know that. Most likely to have it memorized and say, nope, Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of God. They were deceived. And the lever used against them in deception was religion. Oh, that Veritas Church would not be a group of deceived people that say, I attend church, I do some good stuff, I give, I serve, and not know Christ. Oh, that we wouldn't just have a collection of things that we did and boast in them. Now again, Paul isn't necessarily the same as the other two stories because he's not coming from paganism to righteousness in this story. But he talks about the stark contrast. He's like, look at what I've done. And then in verse 7, he says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All this boasting in my superiority as a Pharisee, my zeal against the way, the church, I count it as loss. The sacrifices I made, the work that I impressed upon my body to be a righteous person, to do the stuff, I count it as loss. I count it as loss. Because of the surpassing worth, there's something better of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he had more things, right? I mean, to be a zealous Pharisee, you move up in the ranks. You don't get more humble. I count it as loss. For the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Friends, family. And count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous one from God, that depends on faith. We see here the worship of Christ. 
Paul as a religious zealot put himself on the throne. I follow the law. I'm from Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he's like, loss, give me Christ. He gets up off his throne and he realizes, God, you have done everything. I am nothing. I am not the center of my universe. The deepest issue that I have, you've addressed in Christ. And he gives glory. He worships God. He points to God. This is the transformation that happens in Christ. Our boasting in ourselves is destroyed. And we boast in the work of Christ. Christ is seated on the throne. And we are before the throne worshiping him for the work that he has done. In us and around us. So this is what I want you to remember from today. Worshiping the Lord fights pride at the heart level. Worshiping the Lord fights for the throne at the right level. Are you on the throne of your heart or is is Christ on the throne of your heart? Are you you calling the shots? Murray, if you, if you built, built a kingdom, you sit on your throne, God's your right-hand man, he does stuff for you. Woo! Or is he on the throne? And you're a part of his kingdom. Worshiping him, exalting him for even the opportunity to be a part of his kingdom. All the self-help in the world... All the self-confidence in the world will never minister to your soul and heal your wounds like worshiping the Savior will. It sets things right, how they should be. And correcting your course starts by realizing that pride is a damning problem. Pride not only wants to destroy your life, I would argue it wants to kill you. People have said that pride is the mother of all sins, right? And some of us come in and we're like, I've got so many issues, you couldn't even help me. And I wonder how many of those issues fit into one category called pride. Some of the anger, some of the anxiety, some of the depression, some of the tension in your marriage. I wonder how much of that is solely summed up in pride. This inability To put Christ on his throne or the ability to keep yourself on the throne when he's like, I'm the king. Church, I'm the king. Pride must be destroyed. We cannot worship ourselves and Christ. And as we come into the Christmas season, that's the tension. We can't be on the throne of our life and bring in another king. It's interesting when Jesus Christ was born, right? The wise men, they go to Caesar and they're like, where's the king? And he's like, where's the king? I'm the king of the Jews. You can just picture his heart being like, what? What's going on here? Who's doing what behind my back? Where's there another king? And he ends up destroying all his enemies for the sake of being the king. All the babies. Two years of old age and younger, he destroys because he covets them. So it is with our heart that if you bring in a Christ, if you bring in a Savior, if I'm on the throne, it's going to create tension. And for some of you, maybe that tension is there right now. 
confess your sin. You are not the center of your universe. Christ ought to be the center of the universe. The Lord ought to be the center of your universe. There's no room for you on the throne. But there's room, there's a beckoning call for you to gather at the foot of the throne. And worship the king who's on the throne. In his rightful place. So how did you do on our test earlier? How did you do when you thought about the anger and the frustration about your plans and your thoughts and your family? What ways can you reflect and challenge yourself this week to evaluate honestly, religious person, honestly, who's on the throne? To really honestly and genuinely ask yourself, if my world is rocked, whether it be by death or abuse or something horrendous, God forbid, maybe lesser, if something were to shift, where would your mind go? Anger, frustration, rage, anxiety, fear, depression, or would it tip into Jesus? Certainly you might mourn, but would you mourn like you have no hope? Would you sit at the foot of Philippians 4 saying, I will be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, I will make my request known to you. And your peace, which transcends all understanding, it'll guide my, guard my heart and it'll guard my mind in Christ Jesus. If your kingdom is rocked, are you destroyed? kill pride and I I look at us too as a church right I wonder what it would have looked like over the centuries if the church had dealt with pride at the foot of the cross what would the history books say about us then if instead of trying to be superior to all the bad people we just acknowledged I'm a bad person and I need Jesus And it's fun to talk about history and the rest of the world. But what does it look like for us as a church in Urbana to deal with pride at the foot of the cross? What does it look like for us to actually address the anger in our life? To get to the root of the problem? To find out if it's pride. Certainly not all of it is. But pride is the mother of so many sins. What's driving your sin? So pride starts on our knees at the foot of the throne of Jesus. At the foot of the cross of Jesus. Let Jesus take our selfish plans. Let Jesus take our control. And let Jesus take our special selves off the throne. And let's submit to him. We can begin the fight of pride today practically by partaking in communion. He is on the throne. The king died for us so that we might have life and have life in his name. That we might be actually complete. We can confess our sins and we can approach his throne and we can worship So church, let's today confess our sin, in particular of pride, and let's thank Jesus for who he is. And then if you're able, not everyone might be able, or should, 
we can take communion together. If you've sinned against God, confess your sin to God. If you've sinned against God and another person, confess your sin to God. Apologize and ask for forgiveness from that other person. And unless you can do that, don't take communion. It is not an open table. Don't take communion if you're walking in sin. Don't take communion if you're harboring pride. Lest you heap judgment on yourself, 1 Corinthians 11. Take this very seriously. But let's as a church, let's confess our sin. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you accept wicked people. God, not only that you came to earth from being king of the entire universe, creator of all things, all things were made through you and by you, and there was nothing made that wasn't made by you. And you you deal with a sinner like me, who is plagued with pride. You beckon us, God, to come to your throne. You beckon us to uh, let you lead, God. You beckon us to give our problems to you. God, there's so much to be said about pride. But Lord, we give you this church. God, we give you our issues, our desires to be in control. God, I pray that you'd hear the prayers of your saints in this room, God, and you'd alleviate um, the burden of sin that is present in our lives. God, and I pray that this Christmas, Lord, we would see the humility and example of Christ like we've never seen it before.